if you brought your Bibles, if you would open them to the book of 1 Peter. We'll be in 1 Peter chapter 1. will be our passage. We'll be looking at verses 3 through 5. Let me just read the passage. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In 64 AD, uh, the city of Rome caught on fire. Rome was divided up into 14 districts, and only four out of 14 escaped damage. Seven of the 14 districts were completely destroyed. And as his capital city was burning, as the people of his city lost everything they owned, and many of them lost their lives, their emperor Nero stood there admiring the flames. One Roman historian quoted Nero saying, Oh, the beauty of the flame. Nero then turned around and blamed the Christians for the fire. He used the intelligentsia, the intellectual class, and the philosophers of the day to convince the population that it was Christians who started the fire. And therefore, they deserved to be punished. Now, his argument was, this is capital punishment, but for Nero, this was just good sport. He enjoyed what he did. He burned them at the stake. He crucified them just to mock them. He would tie meat to them and have dogs chase them through the Colosseum to kill them. The Christians of Rome were suffering immeasurably. And while Peter's readers weren't in Rome, they were probably suffering too, because that seems to be a big point of his entire letter. 1 Peter 1, verse 6, he says they are distressed by various trials. In chapter 2, verse 20, he tells them you have been called for the purpose of suffering. In chapter 4, verse 12, he says, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal, the fiery trial that comes upon you. Peter tells him in chapter 5, verse 9, that other Christians, your brethren throughout the world, are suffering in the same way. Peter doesn't want them to be confused. Suffering is a fact of life for a Christian. You are going to suffer. It's just part of the Christian experience. And you may not be suffering at the hands of a despotic emperor. That may not be the kind of suffering you face. But you'll face suffering of all kinds and all sorts. The loss of a job, the loss of economic opportunities, because you're a Christian. Some of you have already lost relationships with friends because of your profession of Christ. Some of you have lost relationships with family members. Suffering can come in other forms, not just religious suffering, but suffering in the form of sickness and disease. That diagnosis that you got. The diagnosis of a family member, of a loved one, can cause suffering. The question is not, am I going to suffer? 
That's not the question Peter's asking. The question is, how do I endure suffering in a way that is pleasing to Christ? How can I go through suffering and maintain my profession? Peter already started his epistle and told him in verses 1 and 2 that they're elect exiles. That this world is not their home. They're aliens and sojourners in a hostile world. And starting in verse 3, Peter now begins a doxology. Peter begins to worship and to praise God. And he's doing it to encourage his readers. His readers who are suffering. Notice the beginning of verse 3. He said, blessed be God. The term blessed refers to one who is spoken well of. It's a person that is deserving of praise. A person who's deserving of compliments and adoration. You might translate it this way, praise be to God. Not just any God. The Romans had many gods. There was a pantheon of gods. He doesn't want you to praise just any God. He didn't want his readers to praise all the pantheons of gods that the Romans had. No. Verse 3 again, Peter specifies the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Peter excludes all other gods and says you need to worship and praise the one true God who has revealed Himself in the person of Christ. He and He alone is worthy of your worship. Is worthy of your praise. And therefore, because He is worthy of your praise, you should praise Him. And Peter's point to his reader is you should praise Him even while you're suffering. Okay. How do I do that? What if I'm going through a difficult time right now? The world's not as it should be. I'm suffering. People are hurting me. Practically, how do I worship God in the midst of my suffering? How do I bless God right now? Well, the answer to that is you worship by recalling the truth that you know about God. By recounting His works. And the best example I can find, well, it's one of many, is in Psalm 103. You don't need to turn there. I just want you to hear what the psalmist says. He says, verse 1 and 2, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of His benefits. Can you tell the psalmist wants to bless the Lord? He wants to worship God. He begins and ends his psalm by saying, Bless the Lord. And what happens in the middle? The rest of the psalm is how he blesses God. It's how he worships God. We don't have time to look at all of it. I'll just point out a couple of verses. Verse 3, He blesses the Lord by stating that God pardons all of your iniquities and He heals all of your diseases. Verse 5, He blesses the Lord by saying that God satisfies your years with good things. Verse 10, He blesses the Lord that God has not dealt with us according to our sins. Over and over and over again, David blesses the Lord by simply recounting what Yahweh has done. You will not be able to endure suffering by simply focusing on the suffering itself. 
You can endure suffering by focusing on getting out of your circumstances. Sometimes we get into a difficult time and all we can think of is, how do I get out of this? And our prayer life becomes nothing but a bunch of requests on, God, would you get me out of this? Would you change this circumstance? Would you change that person? Would you fix this over here? That's not what Peter wants his readers to do. In the midst of their suffering, he wants them to do one thing. Bless God. He wants them to worship by recalling what God has done for them. And Peter is going to help them do just that. And he's going to do that by providing four truths about salvation. Four truths about salvation so that you can praise God even in the midst of your suffering. Let's look at the first truth about salvation. The first truth, you have been given new birth. If you look at verse 3 again, who, according to His great mercy, has caused us to be born again. He says you have been caused to be born again. He uses a term that means to beget again, or to cause to have a birth again. This refers to the beginning point of salvation. When a person comes to faith in Christ, they are able to have faith in Christ because they have been given spiritual life. Paul in Ephesians 2 said that before your conversion, everyone is dead in sin. Dead. The sinner is spiritually useless. As useless as a corpse. Romans 3 says there is none who seek after God. There is none who do good. They don't have the ability. They're spiritually dead. Romans 8 says those who are in the flesh can do nothing that is pleasing to Him. 1 Corinthians 2 says that in, in, in your spiritual, spiritual condition as being dead, you cannot even understand truth. You don't even have the ability to comprehend And because of your spiritual death, the only thing you can do is sin. Ephesians 2 again, he says, you follow after the world and the world is following after Satan. Your life is consumed and focused on one thing, sin. And Paul says, you're spiritually dead. You are by nature children of wrath, deserving of God's wrath and judgment. And herein lies the biggest problem. The biggest problem for the sinner is not the suffering of this world. The biggest problem for the sinner is not the problems of the world. It's a problem that the dead sinner cannot fix. That they cannot do anything about. Jeremiah asks, can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Then you also can do good who are accustomed to doing evil. Before your conversion, you were hopelessly dead. You had no hope. It is God that must change you. He must make you into a new person. In John 3, Jesus told Nicodemus, you must be born again. Literally, you must be born from above. You must be made alive. Paul told the Ephesians, even when you were dead in your transgressions, He made us alive together with Christ. 
Christian, you used to be dead. You had no hope. You were cut off from God and without hope in the world. But God is rich in mercy and He gave you new life. And your life radically and fundamentally changed in that moment. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17, he says, Everyone who is in Christ is a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. God gave you new life through a birth. It's the only way you can describe it humanly is to say that you have been born again. And why did God change you? Why did God give you spiritual life so that you could be pleasing to Him, so that you could be obedient, so that one day you can enter into heaven? Why did He do that for you? Peter says, because of His great mercy. Despite popular sayings these days, it had nothing to do with your decision. It had nothing to do with your choosing. It had nothing to do with you stepping out in faith or your good works. It was an act of pure mercy. You give mercy to those who deserve punishment. You give mercy to those who cannot earn it. You give mercy to someone who is in a miserable and terrible condition and they have no ability to help themselves. That's who you give mercy to, and that's who God has given mercy to. He's given mercy to a bunch of dead sinners. By giving you new life, He gave you abundant mercy. And when the Father in heaven gave you new life, when you were born again, He became your Father. He went from your enemy to your Father. You went from His enemy to His child. He adopted you. And now He cares for you, He provides for you, and He loves you as a father loves a child. When you're going through suffering, when you're going through trials and difficulties, remember, you still have a reason to worship Don't dwell on the circumstances. Don't dwell on the pain. Fill your mind with what God has done for you in giving you a new birth. He's liberated you from an eternity of suffering. He's given you the ability to have fellowship with Him. He's adopted you as His child and He has enabled you to live a holy life, a life that He will eventually reward you for. He's made you an heir with Christ to all the spiritual blessings of heaven. Your current suffering will only last for a little while. Your life is but a vapor. And when it's over, 1 Peter 5, verse 10, your heavenly Father, the God of all grace, who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. 
And going through suffering, praise God that He has given you a new birth. That birth not only changes your current life, your current circumstances, but it changes your outlook on the future. On how you see tomorrow. That brings us to the second truth about salvation. You have been given a living hope. You have been given a living hope. Look again at verse 3. You have been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You know, suffering in this world is never fun. I've never met anyone who said, well, I'm suffering really bad, but man, I sure enjoy this. But that suffering is made completely unbearable if this world is all that you have. You know, I couldn't imagine living as an atheist. Because as an atheist, this is the only life you get. After this, it's all over. Athe- uh, suffering from the atheistic perspective is pure torture. Because if this is the only life you get, the only thing you will ever get in life is suffering. Their only hope is death. And that's a false hope because when they die, they're going to face God in judgment and they're going to suffer immeasurably more when they experience His wrath. Ephesians 2 verse 12 says, They are without God in the world and they have no hope. That's not true of you. If you're in Christ, if you've been born again, you have a living hope. It is the result of your new birth. That hope is living in the sense that as you grow and mature in the Christian faith, your hope grows with you. Your hope becomes more and more a reality in your life. And it increasingly provides you comfort when you're suffering. The Bible commands you to not, to, not to love the world. And suffering is the means by which God divorces you from the world. He drives you from loving the world to desiring and wanting something other than the world. Something better. So what is this hope? What is it that Christians have a living hope for? The term Peter uses here is, uh, for hope refers to a subjective outlook. It's an outlook that the believer has for the future with a sense of expectancy, and it always refers to expecting something good. It's an expectation of future good. That things in your future are going to be better than they are today. An atheist cannot say that. They can't say that about the present life. They can't say that about their future life. You can But this is where they say, well, isn't that just wishful thinking? Surely this is just escapism. You're just convincing yourself of a big lie just so you can try to bear what you're going through and eventually you're going to get let down later. No. Notice in verse 3 again, you have a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The resurrection of Christ is the means by which we have this hope. It's the foundation of our expectation. It's the reason we can have confidence that tomorrow will be better. 
that there is something better for us. It is proof that the sacrifice of Christ was accepted. That your sins have been dealt with. They have been forgiven. He's done away with the greatest suffering you will ever possibly experience. He's liberated you from the penalty of your sin. And His resurrection proves that you have been liberated. Without the resurrection, you're just like the atheist. You you have no hope. Paul said, without the resurrection, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. If Christ has not been raised, Paul says, those who have died in Christ will be punished eternally. If Christ was not raised from the grave, we are, all, we are of all men most to be pitied. But He has been raised. The grave is empty. He has overcome sin. He has overcome the consequences of sin, including physical death. And because He was raised, you too can have hope that you too will be raised. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20, But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. Today we suffer from the consequences of sin. Everything you suffer today is because of sin. The effects of aging on our bodies, the atrophy over time, illness, sickness, disease, death, crime, war, you name the suffering, every one of them is caused by sin. But we have a living hope. One day we will receive new bodies, bodies that are imperishable. Bodies that are freed from all the effects of sin. Bodies that will never again suffer because of COVID or cancer or crime or any other ailment. When we are resurrected, we will be totally and completely liberated from all suffering, from all pain. And our new imperishable bodies will be perfectly suited for dwelling in the presence of a loving Father. You might be suffering today. You might be going through a trial. But you can praise and bless God for that living hope. That one day, that suffering will end. You have a hope that your future will be infinitely superior to what you're going through now. So when you're suffering, bless God for the truths of salvation. Praise Him that you've been given new life. You've been given a new birth. You've been given a living hope. And third, the tr third truth about salvation, you have been given an eternal inheritance. You have been given an eternal inheritance. Look at verse 4. The beginning of verse 4, he says, to obtain an inheritance. We all understand the idea of an inheritance. An inheritance refers to receiving something from a loved one. It's usually connected with death. 
that person works hard. It's usually a parent or a grandparent. They work hard throughout their lives. They earn up, earn, and accumulate wealth over decades of hard work. And then they pass that inheritance on to you. They don't pass it on to you because you earned it. They don't pass it on to you because you deserved it. They do it because you're family. They love you. And they pass on their inheritance to you. I want you to notice in this passage, Peter starts by mentioning the Father in heaven. And then he talks about birth, your new birth that brought you into the family through Christ. And now he mentions an inheritance that you will receive. And the idea of an inheritance goes all the way back through the Old Testament. Israel was promised an inheritance. They were promised land. It was the land that God had promised to their forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Numbers 26, verse 55, But the land shall be divided by lot. They shall receive their inheritance according to the names of the tribes of their fathers. Their inheritance was a promised plot of land. A piece of land that invaders would come into that they would eventually be kicked out of. But your inheritance is not a piece of land. It is far greater. It's so great that Peter has trouble just explaining what it is. And so he doesn't even try to explain what it is. Paul said that God has prepared things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard and which have not entered into the heart of man. All that God has prepared for those who love Him. The collective mind of man has not been able to think up what God has prepared for His children. And so Peter doesn't even try to explain the inheritance in a positive way. Instead, he tells you what it's not. And he gives you three adjectives describing what it's not. The first adjective in verse 4, our inheritance is imperishable. That doesn't describe anything on the earth. Everything on the earth is perishable. Because of sin, everything that exists on the earth eventually begins to decay. Paul in Colossians 2.22 said everything was destined to perish with use. The more you use it, the less it works correctly. It's either going to perish with use or it's going to perish because of God's ultimate judgment. In 2 Peter 3.10, he says that everything will melt with fervent heat. Everything in this world is destined to perish, to be destroyed. Accept your eternal inheritance. This word imperishable is only used to describe heavenly realities. In 1 Peter 1.23, it describes the Word of God as being the imperishable seed. In 1 Corinthians 15, it describes your resurrection body as being imperishable. This is the same term used to describe God in Romans 1, verse 23. He's called the incorruptible or the imperishable God. In 1 Timothy 1, it describes Jesus as being immortal. 
it's only used to describe things of heaven. Things in heaven never break down. They never lose their perfect condition. They never pass away. And neither will your inheritance. It will be just as pristine, just as perfect in a million years from now as it is today. Your inheritance is imperishable. Verse 4 again, it's also undefiled. The root here has to do with coloring or painting or staining something. Peter describes our inheritance as being undefiled. That is, it is not stained or colored by sin. It is not tainted in any way. It's the same word used to describe Jesus in Hebrews 7, verse 27, when he says, For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled. Same word is used. The inheritance God has for you takes on His perfect nature. Completely set apart from all sin. It's perfectly pleasing in the eyes of the Father. It's perfect in every way. And it cannot and will not ever be stained by any sin. Third, your inheritance will not fade away. This is still in verse 4. I remember when I bought my first car. It's like 18, 19 years old. And the first few weeks, I was in awe of the car. I couldn't believe, hey, that's my car. The paint job looks really nice. The inside was nice and clean. And at the time, it had everything you wanted in the car. Powered windows, CD player, sunroof. I mean, what more could you want? thought it was great. I'd wake up in the morning, look outside, that's my car. I was thrilled. Well, for the first few weeks until the first payment was due. But after the first month or two, the car just wasn't so new anymore. It was simply a car. It became ordinary. The paint was dirty, the inside wasn't as clean as and nice. Gradually, more and more, the car lost its initial glory and beauty. I lost my awe and wonder. Like a flower that comes to full bloom and then just fades away. Because of sin, that car just became ordinary and dull. became drab. My perception of it changed. Your inheritance in heaven is a faultless flower in full bloom that will never wither or fade away. When you receive your, inter- your eternal inheritance, you will never lose your awe, your wonder, and your amazement. You will spend all of eternity in absolute awe and amazement on what God has given to you. It'll never go dull. It'll never fade out of your mind. You'll never cease to be amazed. Just as much as you will be the first day you walk, in, walk through the gates of heaven. And Peter's not done. Not only is your inheritance by nature imperishable and undefiled, and it will not fade away. Look at the end of verse 4. It is reserved in heaven for you. Peter describes your inheritance as being reserved. 
It's under guard. It's guarded and watched over. And it's guarded in heaven. Where there is no sin. Where the curse of sin cannot get to it. Where thieves cannot pillage and plunder your inheritance. Or taxes won't get to it either. It's reserved. It's guarded. And it's guarded for you. It's protected so that you can receive it. And nothing in the world, none of your circumstances, none of the suffering of this world, none of the persecution of this world is going to change that inheritance. Not even your sin. Because the work of Christ has completely done away with your sin. Nothing can change or alter your inheritance. So what is this inheritance? Peter doesn't actually tell us in this passage, but we can kind of figure it out. Colossians 3, verse 24 says, it is a reward given by Christ Himself. Hebrews 9, verse 15 calls it an eternal inheritance. Our inheritance includes eternal life. Matthew 19, 29, Jesus says that you will inherit eternal life. Your inheritance also includes the kingdom that was promised in the Old Testament. James in James 2.5 says that the kingdom is promised to the heirs who love Him. That's the eschatological kingdom that Jesus will usher in when He returns. Why is that kingdom good news for you? Let me just give you some details on the kingdom for a moment. One, there's no longer going to be war. Isaiah 2.4 says they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation. Never again will they learn war. The hostility between the nations will cease. Christ will sit on His throne. He'll rule over all the nations. And all that hostility will be gone. The hostility between you and animals will also be gone. If you're wondering what I'm talking about, what hostility between you and animals? Well, if you want to figure that out, um, hug a grizzly bear. That's the hostility I'm talking about. Pick up a rattlesnake. They're fearful of humans. That too will be gone. Isaiah 11, verse 8, the nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra, and the winged child will put his hand in the viper's den. Revelation 20 says that Satan will no longer deceive the nations. Revelation 21, verse 4, talks about the eternal state. What is your eternal life going to look like? It says He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. All suffering will be completely gone. That's your inheritance. In this life, you will suffer. The key to enduring suffering and in a Christ-honoring way, is to worship God in the midst of it. To praise and to glorify Him. To fix your mind on what Christ has done for you. Get your eyes off the world. Get your heart fixated on the next world. Think and dwell on the truth that you have been given a new birth. You have a living hope. You have an eternal inheritance. And finally, number four, you have been given divine protection. 
Look at verse 5. Who are protected by the power of God through faith. This comes right off verse 4 and refers to those who will receive an inheritance. Verse 4 ends, reserved, for heaven, reserved in heaven for you. Verse 5, who are protected by the power of God. Not only does God guard and protect your inheritance, Peter says that you are protected. This is a military term. It refers to a soldier protecting or guarding someone or something. And there's two senses that it's used in. In one sense, it's used to guard someone to keep them from escaping. You would guard a prisoner. You don't want them to get away. In the other sense, a person can be guarded to keep them from danger. And both of these senses are in view here. You are guarded, you are protected from running away. And you are shielded from all danger. And you are guarded and protected by the power of God. The President of the United States has a Secret Service detail. They surround him. They kind of put up what they call a little protective bubble. And they make sure he doesn't leave the bubble. And they guard and protect him from every danger that might come in. That might try to harm him. And as good as they are, as much as work as they put into it, they still miss some threats. The assassins have still gotten to some of their protectees. The power of the Secret Service is limited. And it's sometimes deficient. But Peter doesn't say you're protected by the Secret Service. He says you are protected by the power of the most powerful being in the universe. A God who is so powerful that He spoke all of creation into existence from nothing. His power is greater than any other being or force in existence. Nothing and no one can overcome Him. And it is that power that guards and defends you. And Peter says it does so through faith. Faith is a necessary component that brings about divine protection. Faith is trust, trusting in God. Faith comes when a person recognizes their own inadequacies and needs, and they realize they need help from God. And as a person trusts in God, God brings His power to guard and to protect them. But what is this protection for? Surely he's not protecting you from earthly suffering. Peter's readers are suffering. So in what sense is God protecting us? Verse 5 again. For salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. You are being protected by the power of God through faith so that you can experience the full manifestation of salvation. So that you can receive all the blessings of salvation. And salvation here is parallel to inheritance in verse 4. Both of them refer to the same idea. The term for salvation here is a broad term that refer, refers to the entirety of the Christian experience. It includes your past, present, and future aspects of salvation. 
It can refer to the past salvation when you trusted in Christ and He justified you and declared you righteous. It can refer to your present salvation that you have power over sin today and are able to live in a Christ-honoring way. They can also have a future aspect. And that future aspect is what Peter has in mind here. Salvation here refers to our, to our future complete liberation from sin. From all of its consequences. And the moment we receive all the spiritual blessings promised to us. You are being protected by God so that you can receive your full salvation. Nothing can separate you from that salvation. Nothing can separate or remove you from your inheritance. Romans 8.35, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or a sword? And the obvious answer to that question is nothing. Jesus in John 10 said, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. Imagine I had a coin, a small coin, and I put it in my hand, and I gripped it. Unless you're a lot stronger than I am, you're going to have a really hard time getting that coin out of my hand. And Jesus says, you're in his hand. And He's got a hold of you. And no one will snatch you out of His hand. Verse 29, My Father who has given them to Me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. You're firmly in the hand of Christ, and the Father takes His hand and He wraps it around Jesus' hand. Securely, safely wrapped in the hands of a loving God where no one can get to you. These are the most powerful hands in the universe. You're not going anywhere. Your salvation, while it's not yet fully revealed, is absolutely certain. So certain that Paul in Romans 8 speaks of your glorification and entrance into heaven in the past tense. He says in verse 29, and these whom he predestined, he also called, and these whom he called, he also justified, and these whom he justified, he also glorified. He speaks of your glorification and entrance into heaven as though it has already occurred. That's how certain it is. Peter in 1 Peter 5, 1, 5 ends the verse by saying this, that your salvation is ready to be revealed in the last time. The last time just refers to the return of Christ in the future. Ready to revealed simply means there's nothing left to do. It's like when I was a kid and mom would say, dinner is ready. That doesn't mean dinner is being cooked and it'll be ready in 15 minutes. No, it's ready right now. There's nothing left to do. All of salvation is accomplished. You don't need to add anything to it. God doesn't need to make any final last minute adjustments. It is ready for you. And you can have confidence that you're protected. That you will make it to the end. No tribulation, no persecution, no suffering. There's no sin that can prevent you from receiving that salvation. You might be suffering this morning. 
life may not be going the way you want it to. You might have trouble at work. You might have trouble at church. You might be suffering from illness or sin. You might be suffering from the loss of a loved one. Or you just might be suffering because you're watching the world crumble. The key to endurance is not focusing on those things. It's not trying to change all of your circumstances. It's not trying to change the people around you. The key to it is not to try to escape the suffering. The key to enduring suffering is to do what Peter encourages you to do here. Recount the deeds of a faithful God. Bless God by speaking of His wonderful deeds. Think on and dwell on what God has done for you in salvation. And you will receive comfort for your soul. Christian, you have no reason to despair. You have every reason to be hopeful. And I'll just close by saying that this message has been for believers. If you're a believer this morning, all of this is true for you. If you're not a believer, Ephesians 2.12 applies to you. You have no hope. You are without God in the world. If you have not been born again, if you have not come to a saving faith in Christ, if He has not changed you and given you spiritual life, then your next life will be infinitely worse than this one. And it doesn't have to be. If you repent, if you turn to Christ this morning, you too can have this inheritance. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the salvation that is in Christ. We ask that you would help us to focus on that, to fix our minds on that. That you would help us to each day worship you, to bless your name, because you are deserving and worthy of it. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.